We're in a series looking at Isaiah 13 to 35. And last week, this section reached something of a crescendo. Right the way from chapter 13, Isaiah has been pulling back the curtain of history to reveal the rock of ages, the Lord himself, the rock eternal, which doesn't mean he's something you can see or feel or touch. It means he is the rock without limits. Take a rock and then remove everything that limits it, all the limits of place and location, all the limits of age and time. Take away all its blemishes, all its cracks and all its vulnerabilities, leaving you with pure weight, absolute strength and raw solidity. And that, says Isaiah, is what God is like. The Lord, the Lord himself, is the rock eternal, giving substance to everything that has substance, giving strength to everything that has strength, transcendent over history and able to make us steadfast when we take hold of him in our minds. And last week, the steadfastness of the Lord blossomed into the full-blown resurrection of his people. Look uh, down at chapter 26, verse 18, just across the page from chapter 28. Isaiah 26, verse 18. We were with child. We writhed in labor, but we gave birth to wind. We have not brought salvation to the earth, and the people of the world have not come to life, but your dead will live, Lord. Their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. In chapters 26 and 27, the steadfastness of the Lord blossomed into the full-blown resurrection of his people. But this week, the tone is quite different. This week, we move from shouting for joy at a funeral to crying out woe at a funeral. Sorry, shouting out joy at a resurrection to crying out woe at a funeral. Across chapters 28 to 33, Isaiah has six woes, six cries of woe and warning. One for Judah's neighbor at the start, one for Judah's oppressor at the end, and in the middle, four for Judah herself. Isaiah's basic message from 13 to 35, well, it's making the same basic point over and over again. When the enemy is at the gate, keep trusting the rock eternal. But here in these woes, in chapter 28 the focus of that message shifts. His focus shifts from demonstrating the Lord's sovereignty as the basis for trusting him to Judah and the decision that they now need to make about whether or not they will. Will they learn to trust the Lord or not? And Isaiah brings out his most evocative imagery in order to make his warning land. During our time today, we're going to pick out three of those images. We'll use them to thread our way through Isaiah's first woe in chapter 28, but they'll also give us something of a sense of what happens in chapter 29 as well. So, first image. First image, the dying wreath on a drunkard's head. 
Judah's neighbours to the north had long abandoned their trust in the Lord, rejecting their invisible, untouchable God. They had carved out for themselves visible, touchable idols, gods like the rest of the world had, gods that could be seen and gods that could be touched, gods that could be manhandled and gods that could be adjusted to personal taste, gods that could be smashed into pieces and ground into chalk dust and gods that should have been smashed into pieces and ground into chalk dust because any god so small and weak that it can be poked about moved around and smashed apart, well, that is not a God worthy of worship. Judah's neighbours had long abandoned their trust in the Lord and it had left them, 28 verse 1, like a drunkard wearing a wreath of dying flowers, overcome by their appetites, intoxicated by their past achievements, slurring and stumbling, lunging and flailing, unable to think clearly or carefully, while everything they once took pride in rotted and died on their heads. Because when you abandon the rock of ages, reality doesn't get any less solid or weighty, you just get more blurry-eyed. When you hold the rock eternal in your mind, your mind is made steadfast, but if you let go of him, well, you're left dizzy and disoriented in a world that is as weighty as it ever was. Which is why the very real danger for Judah's northern neighbours was that when they were inevitably knocked to the ground, verse 3, they would be unable to get up, they would be trampled underfoot, and they would fade like flowers in a gutter full of sick. It is a pungent image of a nation whose egos are so inflamed with pride that they have lost hold of everything that once gave them dignity. And if we wanted to be a bit provocative, perhaps we could say there is a bit more of Britain in this image than we might like to admit. Young people in Britain today feel anxious and dizzy and disoriented. And maybe that's because this universe is chaotic to its core. Or maybe it's because reality is as solid as it ever was, but British culture is drunk. So intoxicated by things that can be tasted and touched and bought and sold that we have forgotten that the only dignity Britain ever had came from things that can't be. Things like wisdom and justice and courage and self-sacrifice. If there has ever been anything dignified about British culture, if there has ever been anything dignified about any culture, well, it won't be because of what you can find in that culture's shops or in its museums, or on its maps. Its dignity will have come from the values that have invisibly shaped it. And in Britain, those values have been deeply shaped by faith in the God of Christianity, the God that more and more people are abandoning without having found anything solid to take his place. We've thrown God out of politics and education 
and all of society, thinking that those things are stable enough without his steadying presence. But as a friend of mine once put it, what's the actual logic behind removing God from public life? We are hurtling towards extinction, our consciousness created by blind physical laws and driven by a ruthless desire for food and sex in a world where only the fittest will survive. Therefore, what? Love your neighbor. Look after the poor, the lame and the vulnerable. Lay down your life for the greater good. A moment's thought will show that those conclusions do not follow from that premise. And in the cold, arid universe of secularism, those conclusions will only ever wither and die like cut flowers on the head of a drunkard. Britain is a nation intoxicated by what we can see and taste and touch, and it has left us sick with secularism. So proud of our achievements that we have abandoned the solid rock on which we built them, enslaved to our most basic appetites, unable to reason clearly, unable to act compassionately, dizzy and disoriented in a world that is as weighty as it ever was, which means the very real danger is that when a hailstorm knocks us over, we will fall to the pavement, we won't be able to get up, and the flowers in which we took pride will be trampled in the gutter. It is not a happy image, although it is at least an explanation that makes good sense of why, for all our past achievements, our culture feels quite so dizzy and anxious. And if things look bleak for Judah's northern neighbours, well, they're about to get far worse for Judah herself. Because the first image was about Judah's neighbour, a dying wreath on a drunkard's head. But the second image is about Judah. The second image is a blanket that is far too small to sleep under. Having watched her neighbor stumble, fall, and be trampled, Judah's plan is not to take hold of the solid rock that her neighbor had drunkenly abandoned. It is to consciously and soberly and deliberately enter a covenant with death, hiding away in falsehoods, by taking refuge in lies. We aren't told here what that specifically meant. In Judah's case, we'll come to something of that next week. But what is clear is that the outcome for Judah will be far, far worse than it was for her neighbour. When the overwhelming scourge comes, verse 18, it won't just beat them down once, It will beat them down morning after morning, by day and by night, again and again and again, reducing Judah, God's people, to a shivering wreck. When reality looks frightening, 
we're often tempted to make peace with lies, whether those lies are lies we tell ourselves to justify an ungodly course of action or lies we tell other people to cover up for ways that we have acted wickedly, whether very small or very big, or lies that everyone else believes and so we just go along with them in order to avoid standing out from the crowd. But Isaiah could not make his point more painfully clear. There is no refuge in lies. There are only sleepless nights and alarmed mornings because it is the very nature of lies to be like a bed or a blanket that is too small for us. There is no refuge to be found in lies because lies simply are not big enough to fit in everything that's true about us and everything that's true about other people and everything that's true about this world. There will always be an uncomfortable elbow that can't quite fit inside the lie or an awkward limb left sticking out in the cold, meaning we have to pull ourselves and others in and tie ourselves and others up to try desperately to fit everything into the lie in which we've taken refuge until every part of us is aching for room to stretch out in. There is no refuge in lies because it is the very nature of lies to be too small for us and bedding down in them will leave us crooked and shivering and sore. I wouldn't be the first person to suggest that the modern West has knotted itself together in a tight web of narrow lies. Um, Some of those lies are barefaced sins, pride, lust, and greed. But others of them are slightly more subtle. The lies of materialism, that it's only what I can touch and see and buy and sell that's really real. Or the lies of secularism, that what I can see and touch and buy and sell is stable enough to build a whole society on. Or the lies of liberalism, that society and education and culture and even healthcare should be oriented around maximizing my individual choices and my ability to express my own personal truth. Or the lies of progressivism, that all those other lies will come true in a glorious future if only we will dishonor our fathers and mothers. These lies may look cozy and comfortable, but the truth is they are too small to fit a whole human being. And there is a stark warning here for God's people. There is a stark warning for the Western church No matter how comfortable these lies look or how scary the world may seem or how big the sin is that we desperately want to cover up, we will not be protected by making peace with lies. And if we try to, well, we will have to lie down in the bed we have made for ourselves, which will become for us one long waking nightmare. If we cannot resist lies today, we will only be weaker and worse at resisting them tomorrow and will be condemned to a future that isn't big enough to stretch out in. First image, the dying wreath on a drunkard's head. Second image, the blanket that's too small to sleep under. Third image.
third image, the farmer who knows wheat from cumin. One of the reasons that lies are always too small for whole human beings is that God has written his law into the fabric of reality itself, which means God's law fits like a glove with the world that he has made. But it also means that cutting against God's law will always mean cutting against nature. There will never be room to stretch out in a lie because all lies are, by definition, unnatural. And for proof of that, Isaiah points us to a farmyard because farmers know that God has written his law into nature. Farmers know that there is a right way to plough, there is a right way to sow, and there is a right way to thresh. And farmers learn that right way to plough and sow and thresh by paying attention to the truth about nature, the truth about the particular crops that they are planting and how each of those crops grows. When a farmer pays attention to nature, verse 26, look down, God instructs him and teaches him the right way. But if a farmer were to curl up in a lie, well, his crops would die because God has written his law into nature. So cutting against his law means cutting against nature itself. Now, I'm not a farmer, and I don't think many of you are either. I cannot tell the difference between wheat and cumin. And one of the ways you know that is that this isn't wheat and cumin. It is pearl barley and quinoa. (laughs) But even I know that if a farmer were to lie about what he's growing, if he started treating cumin like wheat and wheat like cumin, well, his farm would descend into chaos. He'd plough when he should be sowing and sow when he should be ploughing and he would look like a drunkard with a JCB. He'd use all the wrong instruments to do all the wrong jobs because farmers know that there is a right and natural way to plough, there is a right and natural way to sow and there is a right and natural way to thresh wheat which is different from the right and natural way to thresh quinoa. I don't know. Farmers know that there is a right and natural way to farm. And Isaiah is saying, if Judah's farmers are willing to listen to God's law about the right and natural way to plough and sow and thresh, well, why aren't Judah's lawmakers willing to listen to God's law about the right and natural way to live? If Judah's farmers listen to God's law about the right and natural way to live in his world, then why aren't Judah's people willing to? I'm not a farmer, and I know that not many people in this room are either. And that can make it hard for us to remember that God has written his law into nature, but he has. Most of us live a hundred steps removed from a place where we would need to order our lives in grain with the grain of nature. And that can make it easy to forget that reality isn't a meaningless lump of clay for us to shape as we want. Reality already has a shape to it. Because to use another one of Isaiah's images from later in chapter 29, God is the potter, not us. His law isn't a straitjacket, an alien imposition on the natural world. 
His law is how he has given shape to the clay of his creation. And following his law, well, it is the only way that life can bud and blossom and grow and flourish. So if we don't pay attention to his law, then like a farmer who never stops plowing or who threshes quinoa like it's wheat, well, we will never know the right way to live in his world. So far, Isaiah's message has been a stark warning, and he's been bringing out his most evocative imagery to make the point land, confronting Judah with the decision they need to make about whether or not they will trust the rock eternal. But it's as we sit with this farmer in the field that he's plowing that I think we'll find a seed of hope. Because unlike me, farmers know how to look after their crops. And verse 29, all this comes from the Lord Almighty, whose plan is wonderful, whose wisdom is magnificent. The farmer knows the difference between wheat and cumin, and so does the God who taught him. The farmer does not keep plowing the ground forever, and neither will the Lord. God has written his law into nature to tell us something about himself, and the fact that plowing only lasts for a season is God's way of saying something to Judah and to us about how long the plowing of his people will last. The uprooting and overturning and fracturing of his people will only last for a season. And it will probably be very uncomfortable, but it will only last for a season. A day will come when God will gather in what he has sown, and on that day he will harvest in a way that is appropriate to what he gathers If farmers don't plough forever, then God won't either. And if farmers know the difference between cumin and wheat, you can be sure that God really does know the difference between people who have put their trust in him and people who haven't. And he will not ignore that difference, even if it seems so very small that the untrained eye wouldn't even notice it. It is uncomfortable to be ploughed, But that was the season in which Judah was about to find herself. And whether we look at politics or technology or culture or healthcare, whether we look at AI or VR or the BBC or the C of E, well, it seems to me that at the moment we may be moving into a similar season, a season of fracturing and overturning, a season where the earth is being broken up, a season where what seemed like solid ground gets regularly torn apart, a season in which we seem to find ourselves uprooted again and again and again. Well, if that's true, if that resonates with your experience, sit in the farmer's field and take hope from the soil. Because if we are entering a season of ploughing, it will not be comfortable, but it will not last forever. 
It will not be comfortable, but God knows what he's doing. And if we find ourselves pressed down into the soil, then while we're down there, let's learn something about the wisdom that God has written into his earth. It will not be comfortable, but it will not last forever. God knows what he's doing. And verse 16, he has given us a cornerstone to which we can cling. It's a famous verse. It is a beautiful verse, and it's a verse given to God's people for seasons like the one Judah was in, seasons like the one we might be in, seasons in which God's people are being plowed. Look at it with me in verse 16. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation the one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. In seasons of ploughing and fracturing and overturning and uprooting, it can be very hard to know what's solid enough to trust. But friends, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. He is a sure foundation, a tested and precious cornerstone, and he is solid enough for you to build your whole life on. He doesn't shake. He cannot be uprooted. And he is not dizzy or confused. His teaching is warm enough to wrap yourself in. And his words are big enough to stretch out in because his wisdom never fades. So all souls, if you feel shaky or unstable, cling to Jesus. If you feel dizzy or disoriented, cling to Jesus. If you know that our culture is drunk and you're looking for something solid on which to build your life, turn and cling to Jesus. If you find yourself crooked and aching from all the lies that you have made peace with, cling to Jesus. And if you don't know whether you can face this season that we may be entering, turn and cling to Jesus. It may be that the world is about to get much, much more confusing, but Jesus isn't going anywhere. And he was given to us for seasons exactly like this one. As the band come up, why don't I pray for us before we sing? Heavenly Father, this culture is drunk without you. And we are so often tempted to try to take refuge in lies as a result. You've taught farmers how to farm and we pray, would you teach us like you taught them? Would you teach us how to live in the world that you have made? Thank you that you have given us Jesus for just such a season as this one. We pray, would you keep us clinging to him? If we pray it in your mighty name. Amen.